Thank you, Sarah. Good evening, everyone. This is, as Sarah said at the start of our service, this is our last look at David's story. Uh, we've actually been reading it right from the moment that he was kind of chosen and anointed by Samuel way back in 1 Samuel 16. And in a series called Walking the Walk, we sort of followed his adventures right up to the moment where he became king. And then since May of this year, we've been tracking his story as king right up until now where we reach 1 Kings chapter 2, where actually David speaks to Solomon, his son, and his successor, and he speaks to him for the last time, and then in this chapter we read that David dies, or in his own words, he goes the way of all the earth. A few weeks ago, we, we listened to David's kind of famous last song, and tonight we do come to his uh, famous last words, and these famous last words that we're about to read, they're, they're intriguing. Uh, there are aspects of them that are going to be uplifting, that are positive, that are expected. They are words that reflect deep devotion to God and a desire to walk in God's ways. But there's also a rather disturbing dimension to David's final speech. Uh, David appears to be a person at times of deep contradiction, caught between moving expressions of faith on one hand and then somewhat unnerving, worrying declarations of raw power and bloodthirsty revenge on the other. And I want to look at both those dimensions and, and try to make sense of both of those. And so let's, uh, right at the beginning, stand together and we'll read 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It's page 336. So please do stand with me. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him, keep his decrees and commands, his laws and his regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zenariah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's army, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood, he stained the belt round his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace." But show kindness to the sons of Brasilia, of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember you have with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword, but now... Do not consider him innocent. You're a man of wisdom. You'll know what to do. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his ancestors. He was buried in the city of David. 
He had reigned for 40 years over Israel, seven years in Hebron, 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. Grab a seat. So part one, if you like, of David's advice to Solomon is found in verses three, four, or sorry, two, three, and four, and, and we will come back to that a little later. But in the second part of David's advice, he, he tells Solomon to deal with Joab and not to let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. Plus, he is to bring Shimei's gray head down to the grave in blood. So how do you make sense of that part of David's final instructions? Well, to do that, we kind of need to see what happens next. As Solomon, who is now the king, takes on board his dying dad's advice. And so I need you to kind of allow me to tell you what happens next in order to make some sense of the second part of David's advice. So what I'm going to tell you is what happens from verses 13 right down to 46. So if you want to have your Bible open, you can follow this. So two weeks ago, we looked at Adonijah. I think I called him Adonijah, but as Richard corrected me afterwards, and you're right, it's Adonijah. Uh, as we, two weeks ago, we looked at Adonijah's failed attempt to become king. You'll remember that he actually tried to grab the throne from behind his dad's back. But David, with the help of a couple of friends, namely Nathan and Bathsheba, they were having none of it, or he was having none of it, and from his deathbed, he decreed, no, Solomon is to be the proper, the actual next king. Adonijah was then summoned, and he was given certain conditions regarding future behavior, and if he held to those conditions, then he'd be okay. And he was told, now, go home. Well, as it turns out, he didn't. Instead, he went to see Bathsheba. And what he asked was, Bathsheba, can I marry my dad's human hot water bottle? Do you remember her? The stunningly beautiful young virgin who kept David warm at night. Well, Adonijah goes to Bathsheba and says, I'd like to marry her. Well, Bathsheba hears him out. But when she presents his request to Solomon, Solomon goes berserk. And, he, and partly because as far as he's concerned, his older brother is trying to muscle in again on the throne. And so what Solomon does is he dispatches Benaiah, his personal assassin. And he says, I want you to kill Adonijah. And that's exactly what he does. Now, news of Adonijah's murder reaches Joab, who had supported Adonijah's failed attempt to grab the throne. And so when he hears that Adonijah has been murdered, Joab panics. And so he, it says in the text, heads for the tent of the Lord 
and grabs hold of the horns of the altar, which some of you might remember is exactly what Adonijah did. He was kind of seeking refuge. But unfortunately, this time, last time Solomon showed mercy to Adonijah, this time there's no mercy for Joab. And so his personal assassin is dispatched to kill him. But the personal assassin goes to the tent and stands and says, Joab, come out. And Joab says, no, champ, I'm hanging on to the horns of this altar. There's no way I'm coming out. And so Solomon's personal assassin sends word back to Solomon what's happening. And Solomon says, listen, just go in and kill him. And that's exactly what happens. So that's one gray-haired man down. But there's still another one in David's hit list, a man called Shimei. Now, initially, Solomon decides to give this guy a chance by letting him build a house in Jerusalem on the condition that he does not set his foot across the Kidron Valley. He effectively puts this guy under house arrest. Shimei keeps that for three years. But then one day, he violates parole whenever he chases a couple of runaway slaves and he enters the no-go zone. Solomon, as you can imagine, is none too impressed. He reminds him of his oath and he dispatches his hatchet man, Beniah, who goes and does what personal assassins do best, kills Shimei. Second gray-haired man, dead. And so chapter 2 ends with this comment. Look at verse 46. The kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hands. And it's that statement, it's that revelation that actually makes sense of what is otherwise, yes, very difficult and gritty material. David's dying advice to his son, and Solomon's actions following his dad's closing words, yes, they're uncomfortable, they're quite distressing, and yet, and here's the bit, it seems this was all necessary. That if Solomon was going to secure and establish his rule and his kingdom, then eliminating and dealing decisively with those who were intent on destroying it or undermining it, that was necessary. Back in 2 Samuel 7, God had promised David, your kingdom will be preserved. It's going to endure forever. But as we have discovered, and this comes across time and time again in the Bible, there, was, there have always been those who try to rewrite God's story, who try to rewrite the script. There are those who are opposed to God's purposes. But what you also discover, and this is another prime example, is that as God works out his purposes, no one and nothing is going to stand in his way. And sometimes that means there will be casualties. Such is the complexity of Old Testament history. And we may struggle with that. We may even react to that. But there's no getting away from it. There's no getting around it. In order for David's line to continue via Solomon, ultimately to Jesus, 
The kingdom needed to be firmly established. And therefore, at this point in the story, all threats had to be neutralized. And the new king had to eliminate those who stood in the way and God allowed it. So here's the point of retelling that part of David's story. Yes, part two of David's famous last words to Solomon are somewhat shocking. They leave us confused, scratching our heads and wondering, how can a man like that who says to his son to go and take out these various men, how can that man be described as a man after God's own heart? And yet, there was, if you like, method in his madness as God was working out his purposes using David's advice to his son and using Solomon's response to David's advice. And so what all I would say at this point is this, don't be too quick to pass judgment on that part of David's famous last words. But let's go back to the text because let's look at first part of his last words. Because before David talked about eliminating enemies, he also offered his son some inspiring words, God-centered, godly words of wisdom and advice. Look again at verse two. And here it is in, in a kind of couple of different translations, NIV, ESV. Solomon, I'm about to go all the way of all the earth. I'm about to die. So be strong. And did you get this? Act like a man. Or I'm about to go the way of all the earth, it says in the ESV, be strong, show yourself to be a man. Or to put it in a slightly more present day street kind of expression, and some of you might remember this for four, from four and a half years ago. Can anybody remember what I'm about to say? What is the kind of street way of saying this? Man up, exactly. And so what I want to do is, is I want to take that first part of David's final advice and I want to apply it directly to the guys here this evening. I'm not saying what I'm about to say and what I'm about to share is irrelevant to the ladies. But maybe it's just the men here who specifically need to hear it. I don't know. We live in a culture that kind of defines masculinity in, in all kinds of different ways and appears to be relatively confused about what it actually means to be a man. And therefore, whenever you come across a phrase in God's word that says, act like a man, show yourself to be a man, I find it to be potentially incredibly hopeful. There's an opportunity here for God's light, a word to shed some light on this. And how a dying David goes on to define what being a man is actually about is so important, not only for his son 3,000 years ago, but also for, for us in 2015. And so locked up in David's advice, or part one of David's advice, are three interconnecting components. And I want us to notice that these are not just David's thoughts and perspective, because if you look at the second half of verse three, these, these kind of flow from a higher authority. This is what the Lord your God requires. So this is not just kind of David's human reflections. They're, these are divine instructions. And so it starts like this. It starts 
with a call to an obedient submission to Scripture. Solomon, show yourself to be a man, not just of your word, that's possibly true, but of the word. Keep, says is that, keep God's decrees, keep God's commands, keep God's laws, keep God's regulations. Back in, back in Deuteronomy 17, God had set the criteria for each and every king. And regarding their engagement with God's word, he listened to what God's expectation was of each and every king. When you take the throne, the king is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow all his words carefully. And not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites or turn to the left or turn to the right. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. You see, each king was advised to write out the law, the Torah, the available word of God. They were to read it all the days of their life in order that they would know it. And then as a result, in order that they would follow God's word carefully. And I don't think, I don't believe based on the rest of scripture that that advice is specific to kings. I mean, as Deuteronomy 8 says, as Jesus would echo it in Luke 4, it's also in Matthew 4, man doesn't live on bread alone, but man lives, man exists, man survives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. To act like a man of God, to show yourself to be a man, We must be men who read, know, and obey God's word. It's it's really as simple as that. We've got to allow God's word described in scripture as bread and as a hammer and as fire and as a mirror and as a scalpel and as a weapon. We have got to allow God's word men to characterize our lives. The content of God's word must shape our beliefs, shape our values, our attitudes, our words, our ambitions. Otherwise, our minds will be conformed to this world and culture. The discipline of consistently engaging with scripture is a very real challenge for 21st century men. Men, many men in our culture and context live busy lives, active lives, demanding lives, cluttered lives. But it's imperative if we are going to act like godly men, if we're going to show ourselves up to be men, then we need to learn to immerse ourselves in Scripture, revere our God through Scripture, and follow it carefully. David's dying advice to Solomon. Observe what the Lord your God requires of you. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees, his commands, his laws, his regulations as written in the law of Moses, which was the available word of God to them at that time. Solomon, show yourself to be a man of the word. Secondly, show yourself to be a man of integrity. In verse 4, David re-emphasized and kind of drew Solomon's attention to a promise God had made to him and his descendants, and it was this. 
Your descendants are to watch how they live. In other words, their lives have got to ring true. There's, there's got to be consistency between belief and behavior. They were, as it says, to walk in obedience. In other words, this is not just to be head knowledge, it's to be heart, it's to be lived out, it's to be fleshed out, it's to be visualized. It's not just to be believed. God's word is not just to be believed, important in all that that is, but it's got to be lived. Because in that there is integrity. Later on in 1 Kings 9, God actually reminds Solomon about the importance of this when he says, as for you, Solomon, and listen to this, walk before me with integrity. And as someone has said, if you have integrity, nothing else matters. If you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. You see, what you say and how you live should, should mesh. There should be little or no contradiction. Otherwise, if there is contradiction between belief and behavior, between what we say and how we live, then there's a lack of integrity. And we risk hypocrisy. And we face a credibility gap. I, I've shared this before, but I remember someone explaining integrity by using a, a stick of rock. And you see, whenever you, you break into this particular stick of rock, wherever you break into this particular stick of rock, you should still be able to read Southwold Pier. And whenever someone breaks into our lives, tomorrow morning, at work, tomorrow night as we socialize, Tuesday night as we watch TV, Wednesday night as we pursue an interest, as we relate to others, wherever and whenever someone breaks into my life, into our life, do they still read Christian? Or is there an inconsistency? Is there a credibility gap? Here and now, yeah, I'm just going to say, I look okay, but you know what I mean? In terms of, you're thinking, yeah, but when you break into my life on Wednesday afternoon at whatever time, do you still read man of God or something different? Men, watch your life. Monitor it closely so that there is not a lack of integrity. But how do you do that? A few years ago, and I've, again, I've shared this before, a few years ago I came across a set of questions that one man uses as a kind of means to watch over his life. It's a kind of regular spiritual MOT. These may be helpful. If you do want a copy of these, gents, email me. What temptations have I faced this week and how did I respond? Is there anything in my life that I need to confess to God and or someone else? Do I need to extend forgiveness or ask forgiveness of someone? Who do I need to thank? How have I been a blessing to others this week? What wisdom have I gained from the experience God has led me through this week? What have I learned from my reading, from my engagement with scripture and other material? And how have I taken care of myself this week emotionally, physically, spiritually? Show yourself to be a man of God's word, a man of integrity. Watch over your life, man. And finally, show yourself to be a man of commitment. Look at verse four. 
Walk faithfully. This is what David reminds Solomon. Walk faithfully before God. How? With all your heart and soul. Don't be half-hearted, Solomon. Be sold out for God. And the sad discovery, and I know some of you are thinking this, the sad discovery is that Solomon didn't remain faithful. He allowed himself to be compromised. He initially took on board his dad's advice, and he did really well for a long time, but Solomon also messed up badly along the way. And Solomon allowed himself to be compromised in three areas. In worship, by wealth, and by women. And if we're really honest, those are still and will always remain major areas of potential compromise in every man's life. And therefore, the call to faithfulness and wholehearted surrender to God is crucial. Otherwise, we risk becoming a casualty of the faith in one or more of these areas. In terms of worship, men, we need to be aware of other small g gods that creep into our lives. They come in many different forms. And they knock God, capital G, off his place in our lives. In terms of wealth, we need to make sure that we don't allow the love of money and the accumulation of it to capture our hearts. And in terms of women, we need to check our attitude. We need to monitor our thought life. We need to ruthlessly deal with lust. Faithful commitment to God in all areas of our lives is a challenge. But you know something, man? It's the path that we've been called to walk. Be men of commitment. Devote yourselves. Be sold out for God. Don't compromise. And particularly learn lessons from Solomon's life who compromised in three areas that continue to be potential areas of compromise for us. David's famous last words to Solomon begin, be strong, act like a man. And if we're going to do that using a biblical framework, then I suggest we must immerse and saturate ourselves in God's word and become obedient to it. We must watch how we live to ensure integrity, and we must stay faithfully committed, sold out in the midst of temptations to compromise, and may God help us as men to do that. And so, we've kind of come to the end of this series. Our look at David's life is kind of over for now, but I do just want to finish, and, and I'm really nearly done. I want to finish kind of looking back over his life and just share three very quick final thoughts about someone who goes down in history as a man after God's own heart. Here are three final thoughts. David is flawed. David is confronted. David is contrite. Flawed. Do you know one of the features of Scripture is that it presents its heroes in all their weaknesses and vulnerability. 
warts and all, and the flawed nature of all God's servants is part of its message of grace. It is ordinary, earth-bound sinners like David, like us, that God chooses and uses. David is no different from virtually every other key character apart from Jesus, flawed as many of us are. But he was confronted. A number of people spoke into David's life, confronted him and challenged him with the word of God, specifically prophets like Nathan, like Gad. And a crucial test of a monarch in scripture is their capacity to respond to the word of God when it is spoken into their lives. A good king was one who was open to challenge and a bad king is one who wasn't. And the thing about David is that when he was confronted and when he was challenged, he was often open to it. And we have got to be people who are willing to be confronted and challenged by God's word, as I hope at some level and in some way some of us have been this evening. David was confronted. But when he was confronted, take us on to the third thing, his contrite. On more than one occasion, whenever David was confronted by the word of God, he responded, I've sinned against the Lord. 2 Samuel 12. Or I have sinned greatly in what I have done. 2 Samuel 24. Or against you and you only have I sinned, as David writes in that psalm of confession, Psalm 51. You see, David was willing to confess his sin before God whenever he got it wrong. And again, that has got to characterize us. We are flawed, but we're forgiven. And therefore, as we close this series, I encourage each of us, men and women, to continue to allow God's word to confront and to challenge. And may we be willing, like David often was, to come before God on our knees, to confess our sin, to repent, and to seek forgiveness and seek restoration. Because then I do believe that we will be the kind of people who could be described as those who are after God's own heart. Let's pray together. God, I want to pray for each of us here this evening who have sat under your word, confronted by your word, challenged by your word. And I pray for each of us now as we respond to your word. And I want to pray particularly for the men here that they will show themselves to be true men of God as they immerse themselves in Scripture, revere their God through it, and follow it carefully. May we as men be examples to others of true godly living. 
And may we be men of integrity. May we be men who watch over our lives closely so that there is integrity, that there are no credibility gaps. And God, may we be men who stay faithful and committed and sold out for God right to the end. And as each of us recognize that we're flawed, help us to allow others, and particularly via your word, allow us to be confronted and challenged. And may we be truly contrite, repentant people who constantly seek your forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.